right, good evening. My name is Judy Cooper. I'm the coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt Library, and I'm happy to see so many of you here this evening. Um, the, uh, this is a very old building and has very old uh, HVAC systems. And um, this, you know, because of the warm weather arrived early this year, we're st we haven't quite made the transition. So uh, it's certainly cooler in at least this space in the library than it is in many others. And I hope that um, I hope that you'll all be comfortable this evening. We're very glad you're here. This is a, a very special evening. Um, we're, we're pleased to welcome Justin Martin here, and this program is um, being sponsored not only by the Pratt, but two wonderful partners, Baltimore Greenworks and the Friends of Maryland's Olmstead Parks and Landscapes. Um, we partner frequently with Baltimore Greenworks. Um, this is part of an ongoing series called the Sustainable Speaker Series. And so I hope that you will watch uh, our website and the Baltimore Greenworks website um, for future events um, similar to this one, and that would be of interest to you. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce to you first um, Jennifer Morgan, who is president of Baltimore Greenworks. Um, thank you. I just wanted to thank everybody for coming tonight. And um, this is the third, beginning of the third year of our partnership with the Pratt. And I just wanted to thank Judy for everything they've done to help us make this such a successful series. Um, I just wanted to take a minute to do a little commercial. It's the beginning of Green Week. This Saturday is the EcoFest at Druid Hill Park. It starts at noon. And we hope that everybody comes out. It's a great event. The weather looks like it's going to be good. And um, and that's the kick for Green Week. And the program guide is online. You can download it so that you don't have to have the paper. And we have 25 events that are going on around the city all next week. And we hope that you guys can come out. It's our ninth annual. And we're really excited. We have a lot of great things lined up. And we hope to see you then. Um, we're really excited that we're doing this program this evening with the um, Friends of Maryland Olmstead parks and landscapes, right? <laughs> and um, anyway, I'd like to introduce Dr. Ray Barr, who will talk about our speaker a little bit. Thanks again for coming. Well, thank you very much. And it's, uh, we're excited to have you, Justin, uh, to talk about Olmstead. Uh, you know, uh, we are the uh, Friends of Maryland uh, Olmstead uh, Parks and Landscape. We're a nonprofit organization. We've been around 25 years. And I think our major purpose is to uh, get out information on Olmstead because it seems like uh, many people we talk to, they say, Olmstead who? Olmstead who? And here's this great guy who's involved with uh, four or 500 projects throughout the United States and just a venue from Central Park itself in terms of 500,000 people for a concert in a park uh, is just incredible. Can you hear me okay? Okay, so we're just excited to have you. And uh, uh, as you know, uh, there's uh, been 25 years, but it's 130 projects uh, in uh, the Olmstead Sid in the, the Maryland region. Uh, started here with the overall plan in 1904, and it was expanded in 1926. And it connects uh, parkways and the uh, valley streams. Uh, and and um, we hope in the future to involve more uh, 
the vacant spots and uh, open land and things like that to connect even more so. Um, we're just excited to talk about the, uh, the biography of uh, Frederick Law Olmsted, amazing person uh, who uh, had incredible career in terms of pioneering uh, activities and being the father of landscape uh, architect uh, in the United States. And Justin has written not only uh, Frederick Law Olmsted book, but also uh, did Nader and uh, Greenspan. And uh, be interesting to connect those dots when you in your questions and answers. Uh, I think that's really very interesting. Uh, uh, Justin uh, actually uh, grew up around Central Park and uh, used the, uh, Central Park for the refuge when he was applying for a job and things like that. And he, he got to know Olmsted and to love Central Park. In fact, he got married there and has settled in one of the uh, Olmsted uh, uh, properties up Forest Hills and Gardens in New York. And, uh, and, and whenever he gets a chance, he's, uh, he's sneaking around just to find out and take a tour of different Olmsted. He's got a lot of tours ahead of him because uh, Olmsted uh, has been around for a long period of time. We're uh, excited to have him this evening. I, I like best about it, it, the book is uh, Frederick Law Olmsted, but it also talks about uh, the genius of place, which to me is uh, uh, a little spirituality and, uh, and about sacred places and something about those places that enable everybody, the common person, democratic, to be able to, to, to humanize especially when you go up against the dehumanizing aspects of skyscrapes and other things across the United States. And this concept of uh, being able to get back to nature, to humanize, to, is, is, is more than just humanity, but it's, uh, I think, spirituality and a little heavenly touch. And uh, I think you're going to hear that uh, in some of the things that uh, Justin talks about. Justin, it's our pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Everybody got a little preview? <laughs> a <little> backwards? <laughs> so good evening. Um, it's, it's really an honor to be here at the Pratt Library, and um, it's thanks everybody for coming out tonight. Now, my speech is called Frederick Law Olmsted, the Accidental Renaissance Man. That's a mouthful. So I figured the easiest thing to do is to kind of break up my speech into a couple different parts. First, I'm going to describe the absolutely circuitous route that Olmsted took to becoming a landscape architect. Then I'm going to describe one of his greatest plans, his design for the Capitol grounds in Washington, D.C., with an eye toward how he brought all of his previous experience to bear. Then I'm going to describe some of the plans of Olmsted and his son, Frederick Law Olmsted Jr., in and around Baltimore. Then I'm going to give everybody a quick tour of some Olmsted and Olmsted Jr. designs as they look now, so you get to see them kind of in full technicolor. It'll give you an idea of how very intact so many of their designs are. And so as you can see, you're going to get a lot of Olmsted crammed into a pretty brief speech, and there'll certainly be time at the end for questions. Now, Olmsted was born in Hartford, Connecticut. This is actually a monument in downtown Hartford. And if you look about the middle of the monument, you'll see some Olmsteds. These were forebears of his who came over from England in the 1600s and were instrumental in the founding of the community of Hartford. Now, Olmsted, he was born in 1822. And he was born into a pretty prosperous family. His father was a dry goods merchant. And as was the habit, in this era at least, among pretty prosperous families, Olmsted was sent away for his schooling. He entered into a whole series of arrangements with very poor country parsons. 
Now these parsons, they were besieged and beset. They had their parsonage duties. Many of them were running small farms on the side in order to make extra income. And that, so that left them very little time and very little focus for the third role, which is acting as educators. Now Olmsted was very mischievous as a boy. He took full advantage of the situation. He was in the habit of sneaking out of these parsonages. He'd wander around, setting trap for quail, hiking in the woods. As a consequence, he got very little schooling. But he certainly developed an appreciation for landscape, especially the landscape of his native Connecticut. Now, when Olmsted was 14 years old, he developed a very severe case of poison sumac, and it spread into his eyes. At this point, Olmsted contrived to get a letter from a doctor indicating that he no longer needed to attend school. He was delighted, but this also meant that at a very young age, 14, he had to find some kind of useful vocation. Now, the first thing he lit upon was kind of logical and kind of deeply illogical. He decided to become a surveyor. Now, surveying was certainly a profession, this year at least, it was available to someone with limited formal schooling. But Olmsted had also had this recent battle with poison sumac that had spread into his eyes. Never mind, Olmsted pressed ahead. He, he managed to, to um, identify and find a man who was working as a surveyor and arrange to serve an apprenticeship under him. And then while pretending to learn this useful trade, Olmsted wandered around hiking, fishing, paddling in his canoe. He learned precious little about surveying, but it certainly served to, um, to deepen his appreciation for landscape especially the landscape of his native Connecticut. Now about this time, Olmsted's father decided, time for him to get serious, time for him to buckle down. So his father arranged for him to move to Brooklyn, and through connections, his father got him a job working at an importer in Manhattan. Now Olmsted was deeply lonely in Brooklyn, and he hated the job at the importer. He hated the fact that it was a desk job, he hated the regimentation, he hated the long hours. Really, there was only one thing about the job he liked. That was periodically he was called upon to go on board of ships that were docked in New York Harbor to inventory their wares. And it was while doing this that Olmsted hit upon a new possible profession. He decided to become a sailor. Now, once again, this made perfectly, perfect sense. This was certainly a profession, in this era at least, that was available to someone with limited formal schooling. And Olmsted came by this desire honestly. You go back down through the generations, and Olmsted after Olmsted had gone to sea. So in April of 1843, Olmsted set out on board a ship called the Ronaldson from New York Harbor, bound for China. And on July 4th of 1843, as the Ronaldson was rounding the Cape of Good Hope, right beneath the southern tip of Africa, it encountered a ferocious snowstorm. Now, the Ronaldson was traveling through the southern hemisphere at this point, in the southern hemisphere, it's possible for weather patterns to be reversed. So you can get some pretty severe winter weather, even on July 4th. Now, this storm was incredible. Olmsted took a look at around his fellow sailors, many of whom were pretty seasoned, and he could see panic in their eyes. He realized this ship really might sink. About this time, Captain Fox, the captain of the Ronaldson, gave the order to furl sail. Now what this meant was, roll up the sails. The ship had become very difficult to control, and the sails were actually acting as a detriment. So Olmsted and his fellow crewmen, they furled sail, they rolled up the sails, and then Olmsted and his fellow crewmen, they went below deck, and for three days and three nights, they huddled there, while the Ronaldson was just tossed on the ocean, completely unmanned, completely uncontrolled, almost as if it was a cork. Olmsted expected, hang on a sec here. Olmsted expected any moment that the ship 
would be split open, he'd be pitched into the ICC and a certain death. Fortunately, that did not happen. The Ronaldson continued on to China, it delivered its load of U.S. goods, then picked up a load of Chinese tea and headed back towards the United States. Along the way, Olmsted encountered all kinds of privations. He didn't get enough food, he didn't get enough sleep, he didn't get enough water. He watched as his fellow sailors were whipped for even the minorest of infractions. So in April of 1844, when the Ronaldson docked in New York Harbor, and when Olmsted disembarked onto dry land, he swore never, ever to go to sea again. But this only meant that he needed to keep casting about, looking for a worthy profession. Now, this is the very first photograph ever taken of Olmsted. It was taken not long after he returned from that sailing voyage to China. It was taken in 1846, and that happens to have been a banner year for photography in the United States. That was the year that having one's picture taken kind of swept the nation as a fad. In fact, 1846 marks the very first time that a young congressman from Illinois was photographed, that being Abraham Lincoln, of course. Now, this is a picture of five lifelong friends um, from in and around Hartford. They dubbed themselves the Uncommon Friends. Now, Olmsted is the guy who's looking off to the side. Um, kind of, he's the only person not looking at the camera. He's got a kind of abstracted look in his face, on his face. Now, in America, we tend to think in terms of generations. For example, the generation that fought and won World War II, people who came of age in the 1940s, they're often called the greatest generation. Well, Olmsted's generation People came of age in the 1840s. They also had a very distinct generational attribute. They were very committed to the idea of social reform. Now, at the time this picture was taken, these were just five young men casting about. None of them had found their way in the world yet. But if you look at the guy who's looking, he has a very intense expression on his face. He's looking straight ahead. Olmsted has his arm around his shoulders. That's Charles Loring Brace. About a decade after this photograph was taken, Charles Brace would accomplish something spectacular in the realm of social reform. He founded the Children's Aid Society, which changed the way that orphans were treated in 19th century America. That organization is still in existence. It's headquartered in New York City. But at the time this picture was taken, these were just five young men looking for some way to answer that generational call to act as social reformers. And in fact, at the time this photograph was taken, Olmsted wrote a letter to his lifelong friend, Charles Brace, in which he said, there's a good big work once doing, and this our generation, Charlie, let's off jacket and go about it. Well, the next thing Olmsted tried was being a farmer. And once again, this made perfect sense. Farming was certainly a profession that was available to someone in this era, at least, with limited formal schooling. What's more, farming was the profession. 70% of the population was involved in farming. But Olmsted decided he didn't want to just become a farmer. He wanted to become a scientific farmer. This was completely rooted in those first pangs of a desire to enact some kind of social reform. Now you might wonder, how does scientific farming equal social reform? Well, I'll explain. Olmsted was not very well schooled, but he was extremely well read. He resolved that he was going to read the latest agricultural journals. He was going to glean the best practices in farming and then he was gonna disseminate the information to his fellow farmers, many of whom were illiterate. And this way he could act in a kind of social reform capacity. So Olmsted identified a man who received accommodation for running a model scientific farm, and he arranged to serve an apprenticeship under him. 
And when the apprenticeship was over, Olmsted began his life as a scientific farmer. And more than anything he'd done previously, this kind of took. In fact, the image that I've had up for a while here, this is a sketch that Olmsted did in a notebook of a farm implement. And that sketch was later turned into a woodcut that was used to create an illustration in a book. So as I said, farming was, was the first thing Olmsted kind of started to settle into. But then he learned that his younger brother, John, was getting ready to take a walking tour across England. And Olmsted became almost pathologically jealous. He could not believe that his little brother was setting off on this great adventure while he was stuck on the farm. So he started writing a series of letters to his father, in which he pleaded to be allowed to go along. Now you might wonder why a man now in his mid-20s, would have to beg for his father's permission while his father held the mortgage to the farm. But Olmsted's father was also a very kind, very generous man, particularly by 19th century fatherly standards. So he agreed to let Olmsted go, and further, he staked him to some money for the walking tour across England. Now, when Olmsted returned, he was the beneficiary of a very fortunate circumstance. He was farming out on Staten Island, and Staten Island was not yet part of New York City. It was simply an island off the tip of Manhattan. And this is actually a vintage photograph of Olmsted's farmhouse. It's still in existence. It's in terrible disrepair. And right now, the city of New York is working to refurbish it with the idea of opening it as a, as a historic site. But when Olmsted returned from his walking tour, he was met with a very fortunate circumstance. One of his neighbors on Staten Island was a weekend hobby farmer named George Putnam. That's a name that might have resonance for some of the people in the audience tonight. Putnam was the founding of a publishing company, still in existence, still bears his name. Now Putnam was in the habit of, he'd work hard in Manhattan all week, and then he'd go out to Staten Island on weekends and kind of putter around. Now as a publisher, he was a real innovator. He was one of the very first people to publish paperback books. And he was publishing all different kinds. He was publishing collections of short fiction, collections of poetry, treatises on philosophy. And he was selling these for 25 cents a pop. Putnam asked Olmsted, his neighboring farmer on Staten Island, if Olmsted would be interested in producing an account to be published in paperback about his recent walking tour across England. Olmsted readily agreed, and he wrote a book called Walks and Talks of an American Farmer in England. Now, the reviews were extremely lukewarm. Sales were extremely slow. But Olmsted had now made a kind of incredible transition. He'd gone from being a surveyor, to a clerk, to a sailor, to a farmer, to a writer. And now comes an absolutely extraordinary circumstance. This was the early 1850s, and there was a brand new newspaper called the New York Daily Times. A few years hence, it would drop the daily and become merely the New York Times. And this paper was in a competitive fight for its life. This was the era when most major cities had about a dozen dailies. So Henry Raymond, the editor of the Times, was trying to figure out how to distinguish his paper from the large field of competition. And he came to the conclusion that the best way was veracity. This was the time of yellow journalism, and many of the Times were competitors from the habit of either making things up or stretching the truth mightily, or making things up whole cloth. So Raymond felt that if the Times devoted itself to objective reporting, insofar as that's possible, it at least stood a chance versus its large field of competitors. Raymond was also committed to covering the big stories of the day. And one of the biggest stories, this was the early 1850s, 
was that once again, periodic tensions between the northern and southern regions of the United States, tensions centered on the issue of slavery, tensions that had dogged the nation from its very inception. They had reached one of their periodic flashpoints, and people thought there might be violence, maybe even outright civil war. So Raymond, the Times editor, decided he wanted to dispatch a reporter who would travel extensively through the South. Now, Olmsted applied for this job. He had a five-minute interview with Henry Raymond, and he was handed this plum assignment. And you might think, he sounds pretty underqualified. But Olmsted did have a book to his credit. He'd written this book, Walks and Talks of an American Farmer in England. He was also a farmer, and the South in this, in this era was nothing if not an agrarian society. But most importantly, in the course of that brief interview with Henry Raymond, the Times editor, Olmsted succeeded in convincing him that he would be neither a diehard abolitionist, nor would he cover the South with sympathies for slavery. This was crucial to Raymond. He wanted to make sure he sent someone to the South who was open-minded. So in the late autumn of 1852, after the harvest was over, because Olmsted was still a farmer by trade, he set out for the South. And the only way to describe it is nothing could have prepared Henry Raymond, the Times editor. Nothing could have prepared anyone for what an apt reporter Olmsted proved to be. He went everywhere and he talked to everyone. He talked to plantation owners, he talked to slaves, he talked to poor white farmers, and he produced a spectacular series of dispatches that helped put the brand new New York Times on the map. Now, he certainly, in the course of his reporting, became convinced of the evils of slavery, but true to his mandate, he also reported on all different facets of Southern life. And one of the aspects of the South that Olmsted was, was particularly struck by was he found the South a place of surpassing beauty. And the image that I've had up for a while here, this is another sketch by Olmsted from one of his notebooks while he was taking his trip to the South. And this sketch was later turned into a woodcut that once again was used to create an illustration in a book. So Olmsted had now made a kind of incredible transition into what he called the literary republic. And next he, he landed another plum gig. He became an editor at a magazine called Putnam's. And Putnam's was a competitor with another new magazine called Harper's. And Putnam's has had an amazing stable of writers. It was publishing Emerson, Thoreau, Longfellow. While working at Putnam's, Olmsted copy-edited a couple of short stories by Herman Melville. But now comes an absolutely cataclysmic event in US economic history. It's come to be known as the Panic of 1857. It was a very rapid downward spiral in economic conditions. Putnam's, the magazine Olmsted was working for, went belly up. Olmsted found himself out of a job. He, was, he had holes in his shoes. He was low on coal. He owed money to almost everyone he knew. So Olmsted took a job that was an incredible come down for someone who'd lately been traveling in these rarefied literary circles, reporting for the New York Times and rubbing shoulders with the likes of Melville. Olmsted took a job in which he was called upon to knock down shanties and drain swamps in a, a very scruffy piece of land that was prosaically named for its position in the middle of New York City. It was called Central Park. And Olmsted's extremely modest job was simply to clear this piece of land for someone else's design. Enter Calvert Vox. Now, Vox was an English-trained architect, and Vox took one look 
at the existing design for Central Park, and he was disgusted. He could not believe how amateurish it was. And Vox had friends in high places. He'd recently designed the Fifth Avenue mansion of one of the board members of the future Central Park. So Vox started approaching the board and saying, first of all, the, the design that you have right now, it's terrible. I suggest you get rid of it. And secondly, said Vox, in England, where I'm from, if you want to get the best design, you hold a public competition. Well, the board had listened to Vox. It tabled the existing design, and then it announced a new a competition soliciting new designs for Central Park. At this point, Vox sought out Olmsted to see if Olmsted would be partners for the design competition. Now, Vox couldn't care a whit about the fact that Olmsted had recently been traveling these rarefied literary circles, rubbing shoulders with the likes of Longfellow and Melville. That meant nothing to Vox in this context. The reason Vox wanted to be partners with Olmsted was because Olmsted had been out in this scruffy piece of land, knocking down shanties and draining swamps, and Vox perceived that if they teamed up, they'd have a leg up in the competition because Olmsted literally knew the lay of the land. So Olmsted and Vox, they partnered up, and the only way to describe it is it was kind of parallel to his earlier trip that he took through the South reporting for the New York Times. Nothing could have prepared Vox. Nothing could have prepared anyone for what brilliant ideas Olmsted brought to this new endeavor. There were 33 contestants for the public competition. 32 of them produced designs that rate somewhere between a B minus and a flat F. Olmsted and Vox produced an A plus. And here it is. It's called the Greensward Plan. It was designed in 1858. And Olmsted and Vox's original design, the original blueprint, is 10 feet long by 3 feet tall. And I'll give you just one way in which their design was so set apart from their competitors. Many of the other 32 contestants suggested parks that I like to, what I like to call imperial parks. These were parks that were full of elaborate fountainry and triumphal arches. By contrast, Olmsted and Vox suggested a rural, naturalistic treatment for Central Park. And they made the point repeatedly that by doing this, it would help foster democracy. The point they made was, Nature doesn't belong to anyone. Nature belongs to everyone. So they suggested that by having a naturalistic park, all different kinds of people would be comfortable, from all different kinds of backgrounds, would be comfortable mixing and mingling in a kind of glorious democratic experiment. Now, even in cases in which there was to be architecture in the park, bridges or refectories, Olmsted and Vox hewed to this kind of nature-first ethos. Whatever was designed in the park, it was to be secondary, to be subsumed into nature. So with landscape architecture, something that Olmsted just fell into entirely by accident, he finally found a worthy way to answer that generational call to act as a social reformer. And in fact, Olmsted once said of Central Park, he described it as a democratic achievement of the highest significance. Now, Olmsted and Vox had done almost everything they wanted to do with Central Park, what they hadn't done was planned when in 1861 the Civil War broke out. At this point, Olmsted went down to Washington and he headed up an outfit called the United States Sanitary Commission. The United States Sanitary Commission was a battlefield relief outfit that just provided a measurable aid to wounded soldiers during the Civil War. And after the war, through a whole series of convolutions, this very outfit that Olmsted headed up morphed into the American Red Cross. 
But I think by now I've established that Olmsted was a pretty restless guy. So about halfway through the Civil War, he started looking around for some kind of new opportunity. He felt like the United States Sanitary Commission was on even footing. He started looking for something new to do. Now it's worth noting that he did not even consider landscape architecture the very profession that he and Vox had pioneered in the United States. With a, he had a masterpiece to his credit with Central Park, but with a war on, he, just, he did not feel that many communities around the country would be looking for landscape architecture projects. So instead, at the tail end of the Civil War, Olmsted went out to California and became the supervisor of a gold mine. Now while working at that gold mine, about 30 miles away was Yosemite Valley. And Olmsted started visiting repeatedly and he was enchanted. Now according to one account, Olmsted was one of the very first non-Native Americans, one of the first 500 non-Native Americans ever to even enter Yosemite. So that gives you an idea of how isolated the place was in that era. But Olmsted also perceived that it was only a matter of time before civilization started to encroach. And so he started calling for the preservation of this natural place. And Olmsted was extremely prescient. This was more than 50 years before the National Park Service even existed. And he also had a very unique perspective. He wanted to make sure that Yosemite, as civilization started to encroach, that it wasn't that it still wasn't to be a place just for kind of type A backpackers who could make their way there. He wanted to make sure that Yosemite was a place for the masses. And so he suggested a series of pathways that while they would be respectful to the landscape, at the same time would be accessible to everyone. Olmsted actually prescribed that these landscapes, that these, that these pathways should, should be so gentle grade that someone could be pushed over them in a wheelchair. He also suggested that various lean-tos be set up through, along the pathways at various points so that people could stop, rest, get some shade. So he brought very similar considerations to his call for the preservation of Yosemite to what he brought to the design of Central Park. He felt that this should be a democratic space available to everyone. Well, the Civil War had ended. Pretty soon, all these communities around America started clamoring for landscape architecture. So Olmsted and Vox, they reunited, and they did a whole series of projects. They designed Prospect Park in Brooklyn, New York. Actually, I love this image. It's a um, vintage shot of what looks to be a very precarious tree pruning team. <laughs> they designed... Um, they designed an entire... Olmsted and Vox designed an entire system of parks for, for the city of Buffalo, New York. And they also designed Riverside, a suburb outside of Chicago. But Olmsted and Vox never got along well. They were always at each other's throats. So at a certain point, they broke up. And Olmsted continued on solo. And now I'm going to talk briefly about one of Olmsted's greatest designs, his design for the Capitol grounds in Washington, D.C. Now, by the time he got to this project, he, had, he was drawing on so much experience. He had all the experience as a landscape architect in partnership with Vox. He had all the experience solo without Vox. He also had all the various career eddies and dead ends he traveled down. But nothing was wasted with Olmsted. And that's why designs such as US Capitol grounds are so spectacular and so set apart. Now, Olmsted started working on the Capitol grounds in 1874. And one of the first things that he focused on was coming up with a system of circulation. In this era, people were in the habit of they would enter the Capitol grounds at a huge number of different points. And they'd just make a beeline for whatever entrance they wanted to go into. 
So you had this kind of harried grid work of people just crossing one another. Well, Olmsted concluded it didn't make sense to change the number of points at which people entered the grounds, but maybe there was a way to make it more rational, to create a more rational system of circulation. So Olmsted came up with the idea that whatever point someone entered at, they would be fed into a narrow tributary path. And these narrow tributary paths would feed into a smaller number of broader paths. And then these broader paths would feed into just a handful of very broad sweeping paths that would deliver somebody up to just the entrance of the capital that they wanted to go into. Olmsted also came up with a very impressive planting scheme. And he planted these screens of trees in certain spots. And this was meant to block some of the less attractive views of the Capitol building, but it was also meant to create a sense of drama. And if someone was to make their way over the Capitol grounds, when they hit a break in the, in the foliage, they'd suddenly have a great view of the Capitol break upon them. Now, Olmsted well recognized that this was kind of a unique project. This was an unusual project because he was supposed to create a landscape where a building, the Capitol, was to be the star. But in Olmsted's reckoning, the capital, as it was constructed in the 1870s, was not worthy to be the star of his landscape. Now, the reason being is this: at this point, the cap, the, a couple of very large states had recently entered the Union, California and Texas. That had doubled the number of members of Congress. And so recently, the Capitol building had been extended, so it was twice as long. And then a new dome had been built that was twice as high. To Olmsted's eye, it looked like someone could just blow on the Capitol and it would just tip over. And for him, this was a very unsettling metaphor for democracy. Now, Olmsted was never averse to expanding the parameters of any project he was asked to do. In this case, he'd been asked to design a landscape, but he started coming forward with ideas of how to change the Capitol building architecturally to make it fit better into his landscape. And his big idea was he wanted to surround the Capitol building with marble, with very um, substantial marble terraces. And his feeling was this, this would ground the building better um, in, in a Capitol Hill. It would make it appear more substantial and formidable. Olmsted really came up with a very comprehensive plan for the Capitol grounds. And he had many, many details, large and small. I'll give one other example. He, just, he sort of worried every detail. One other thing he came up with was something he called the summer house. And the summer house was to be a kind of a way station. It was to be positioned off, off the Pennsylvania int Avenue entrance to the Capitol grounds about halfway up. It was going to be a place where someone could stop and rest, have some shade, get a drink of water. He specified that it should have a water fountain. Now, Olmsted, as I described, the Capitol grounds, what makes it especially set apart as a design is that Olmsted was drawing on all of his previous experience. I'll give some examples here. The circulation system that Olmsted um, was so intent on, this is entirely rooted in Olmsted's earlier experience as a farmer. As a farmer, Olmsted often had the experience, the very unhappy experience, of trying to convey his goods to market when his wagon would get stuck in a muddy road. That spelled disaster. It meant the produce he'd grown wasn't going to get sold. He wasn't going to get paid. So once he became a landscape architect, he had a kind of enduring observation based on his time as a farmer. And it went something like this. He would often tell clients, it doesn't matter how beautiful of a design I create for you. If it doesn't have a rational way for people to move through it on carriage paths or footpaths, it's destined to be a failure. Now, those marble terraces that I described, 
Those are entirely rooted in Olmsted's earlier experience traveling through the South for the New York Times. No one had a, a closer experience of disunion than Olmsted. He'd witnessed it firsthand, and he was intent on making sure that the Capitol building itself was a fitting symbol of democracy. Bear in mind, Olmsted started working on the Capitol grounds less than a decade after the Civil War ended. So he wanted to make sure that the Capitol building was a fitting symbol. In fact, in describing the, mar the marble terraces, he at one point said that his aim was, in quotes, to train the taste of the nation. And finally, that summer house, the intent that, that's entirely based on Olmsted's trip out to Yosemite. Now, Olmsted well recognized that the Capitol grounds was not an awesome piece of topography like Yosemite. At the same time, he knew that all different kinds of people, some of them old, some of them infirm, some of them simply tired after a long day touring around Washington, D.C., would be making their way over the grounds. He wanted to make sure that they would have a place to stop, rest, get a drink of water. He was also very well aware of how hot Washington, D.C. summers could be. He wanted people to have a place where they could take a break. Now, Olmsted, as I said, this was an incredibly thoughtful, comprehensive plan. The client in this case was Congress. And so Olmsted had to battle them ferociously to get the various points of his plan enacted. At one point, he handed out pamphlets to the members of Congress in which he argued for why he'd made his various choices. At another point, he surrounded the Capitol building with scaffolding to give an idea of what those marble terraces would look like. Then he invited the members of Congress to come outside and take a look. Now, Olmsted battled Congress for 15 years, from 1874 to 1889. And as you can see from this aerial view, he won. And it's, um, it's, it's incredible. Um, almost all of the points, almost all of the design elements that Olmsted argued for were enacted. It's a tribute to the practicality of his design. It's also a, tri a tribute to the beauty of his design. And of course, it's a tribute to what a brilliant design Olmsted came up with, that here it is more than a century later, and it is pretty much intact. Now, we're working on a long, an involved project in Washington, it only made sense that Olmsted would make some forays into nearby Baltimore to do some landscape architecture projects. Now, one of these was his plan for Sudbrook Park. Now, Sudbrook Park was to be a model suburb at a time at which suburbs themselves were a very novel idea. And one of Olmsted's hallmarks for Sudbrook Park was he wanted to have curving streets this was the time in which most major cities, including Baltimore, were arranged on the grid plan. And the grid plan is an easy way to lay out a city and to lay it out quickly, but it also meant that everything was very angular, and it gave a sense of frenzy and hecticness. Olmsted wanted to make sure that the residents of Sudbrook Park, by contrast, due to these curving streets, would have a more, a more languid vibe would prevail. Olmsted also was very against the notion he didn't like the fact that in many cities, neighborhoods flowed into neighborhoods without any clear demarcation. He liked the idea of dramatic entrances into neighborhoods. And so this, in the image here, this bridge that you see is Olmsted's original dramatic bridge, entry, bridge entryway into the neighborhood of Sudbrook Park. Another project Olmsted worked up on in Baltimore um, during this period was Mount Vernon Place. And Olmsted, Mount Vernon Place is a classic 
Baltimore spot. Olmsted certainly did not design any element of it. What he did was he refurbished some of he refurbished the four little parks that sit off of the original Washington Monument. And what he did was he just worked to make them consistent one with another. He brought various thoughtful design elements to them. And he also wanted to make sure that in typical Olmstedian fashion that they were pleasant places for people to stop and rest and also pleasant places for people to pass through as they were moving through the neighborhood. Now, this is a painting of Olmsted by John Singer Sargent. And this was done while Olmsted was working on the Biltmore Estate in Asheville, North Carolina. And that project was his swan song. It was the very last project of his career. Now, by this time, Olmsted was old, tired, and in terrible health. So he found the sittings, or rather the standings that were required for this painting, to be very demanding. Fortunately, his son, Frederick Law Olmsted, was on site. He was a student at Harvard University, and he'd come down to Asheville, North Carolina to serve a kind of apprenticeship. He was going to learn the business from his father with an eye toward eventually stepping into the, taking over the landscape architecture practice that his father had worked so long to build up. Now, after about three sessions, Olmsted simply could not continue with this painting. At this point, Frederick Law Olmsted Jr. stepped in and he donned his father's clothing. And this painting was finished with the son having stepped in for the father. From a symbolic standpoint, you cannot make too much out of this. It was literally a changing of the guard. And indeed, just a few short years later, Olmsted would be dead. Frederick Law Olmsted Jr. would take over the landscape architecture practice that his father had worked so long and hard to build up. Now, Olmsted, the figure we've been discussing here all along, he is a grand 19th century figure, properly credited as the, the pioneer of landscape architecture in the United States. Frederick Law Olmsted Jr. would become the preeminent practitioner in landscape architecture through the first half of the 20th century. And it is only fitting that he would also do some of his major work in Baltimore. One of his biggest projects was he did a plan for the growth of Baltimore for its future growth in 1904. This is a, a comprehensive plan with all kinds of ideas about how the city would grow in the future. Now, much more than his father, Frederick Law Olmsted Jr. was an urban planner. America was changing. People were leaving rural areas, leaving farms, and moving to cities. So it made sense that Olmsted Jr. would concentrate much more in his practice on urban planning than his father had. And his plan for his plan, his comprehensive plan for Baltimore included all kinds of very thoughtful touches. For instance, he had he came up with ideas of how to extend the existing streets out into the hinterland. And one of the ideas he had is often to make sure that a street when it extended out to the hinterland, that it wouldn't, if possible, cross streams. That's for ecological reasons. Instead, he wanted the streets to follow the stream if possible. And if it followed the stream, it would create a nice sinuous pathway. It also meant that the street would be on high ground. And of course, as I said, it also meant it wouldn't damage, it wouldn't be crossing the stream and damaging it ecologically. Another part of his plan was he came up with an idea for sort of a, a comprehensive green space, interconnected green space in Baltimore. And he had the idea of connecting many of the existing parks. And the way he proposed to do this was by parkways. These parkways would be very rigorously designed streets. They would have medians that were heavily planted. 
they would be sort of green streets. And so it would be possible to travel from one park to another via the parkways. And the entire time in his scheme, people would be traveling in green space. Now, as, as his, in his comprehensive plan, Olmsted had many ideas about how to connect, extend, expand various existing parks. And Druid Hill Park is an example of an existing park. People sometimes mistakenly credit Druid Hill Park because of the way it looks to being an, the work of an Olmsted. But neither Olmsted nor Olmsted Jr. had anything to do with the design of the park. It dates to 1860, but it was, it was certainly part of Olmsted's scheme or plan to integrate, to create a green ribbon throughout Baltimore. And as part of this plan, he also suggested various new parks that should be added, such as Swan Park. Now, the other major project that Olmsted Jr. worked on in Baltimore was Roland Park. And Roland Park was also to be a model suburb. And again, this was still at a time in which suburbs were a novel concept in the United States. Now, like his father, Olmsted Jr. always wanted to bring social reform considerations to his landscape architecture designs. He certainly did, with, does, did this with Roland Park. He was very thoughtful about laying out the streets and pathways to make sure that they were attractive, um, that they traveled in a kind of languid and relaxing way. They also um, allowed people to sort of mix and mingle with one another. Um, the pathways he laid out, it should be noted, were actually, it was designed for carriage traffic. He started working on, on Roland Park in 1897, but it was easy enough to repurpose these attractively laid out carriageways as, as roadways once automobiles came, came into vogue. Um, he also laid out, he also provided for a, a large amount of common green space in Roland Park. And the idea here being that it would, it would create the community as a refuge for people Presumably, the people who lived there would be working or certainly visiting Baltimore frequently. He wanted them to be able to come home to a place that provided a contrast, that felt relaxing. Um, Olmsted also designed, Olmsted Jr. also designed a lot of um, row houses that were meant to foster a sense of community. He'd often design them so they were in a kind of a crescent shape. They'd have a common space out front. And the idea was that people would have no choice but to enter that common space they would mix and mingle with their neighbors. They would get to know one another. It would foster a sense of community. It would also foster democracy. So everything I've showed you so far have been vintage images of the creations of Olmsted and his son Olmsted Jr. As promised, I'm going to end with a very quick tour in which I'm going to show you modern technicolor images of various Olmsted and Olmsted Jr. creations. Uh, this will give you an idea of how many different projects that the Olmsteads have worked on around the country, how varied they are, and most of all, or most importantly, how very intact they are. Now, I'm not going to talk about any of them. I'm just going to show them quickly. I'm going to read the captions. Um, the first sequence of them will be the work of Frederick Law Olmsted, and then I'll signal, I'll tell you when I show a couple at the end, which are the work, modern images of the works of his son, Frederick Law Olmsted, Jr. So Olmsted designed the campus of Stanford University. This is Belle Isle, an island park in Detroit. The Druid Hills neighborhood in Atlanta. Presque Isle in Marquette, Michigan. Lake Park in Milwaukee. 
Yes, Olmsted designed the grounds of the Washington DC Zoo. Here's a modern shot of Mount Vernon Place with cherry trees in blossom and the original Washington Monument in the background. This is Delaware Park, the jewel of an entire park system that Olmsted and Vox designed for the city of Buffalo, New York. Shawnee Park, an absolutely gorgeous park in, in Louisville, Kentucky. Central Park in New York City. Everything I've shown you so far has been, in these modern shots, has been the work of Olmsted. Here are a couple from Olmsted Jr. This is Forest Hills Gardens, a neighborhood in New York City. Olmsted started working on this about a decade after he, he began work on Roland Park. And as you might imagine, he drew very heavily on his ideas and design for Roland Park in designing Forest Hills Gardens. It also happens to be the neighborhood in New York City where I live. And here's a modern shot of one of the fantastic communal walkways that run through Roland Park. These are wonderful. These also really foster a sense of community. This is a particularly steep and dramatic one. So I wanted to close by saying that it's wonderful to travel around the country and to see that the vivid democratic vision of Olmsted and his son, Frederick Law Olmsted Jr., is so very alive and well here in the 21st century. Thank you very much. Thank you, and if you have any questions, glad to, glad to answer them. Yes, sir. You were talking about uh, suburbia. At that day, before the cars did come along, you said Golden Park was pre-designed for easily. Uh, how much time did that take? Where was that to come from your townhouse downtown with your work effort in town, and then you escaped to go to your it was it was hopefully not as much time as you might think critical to Olmsted and Olmsted Jr.'s designs were making sure that some kind of conveyance was already in place. In the case of Riverside, which was all the way back in 1868, it was critical that a train from Chicago um, went to the community and so the ride there was oh it was I don't know it's you know 15 or 20 minutes it wasn't so long it was almost like a modern commute somebody in the audience may know better than I do but I know that Roland Park had some kind of conveyance um, streetcars street street thank you so streetcars same kind of deal so he wanted to make sure people weren't just traveling by carriage and the case of my neighborhood Forest Hills Gardens it was actually a collaboration between the Long Island Railroad which hoped to convince people to start traveling out to suburbs, a new idea, and the community. So it's kind of a collaboration. It's like, oh, if we can have an attractive um, neighborhood, we convince, convince people to take the train, and people take the train if there's an attractive neighborhood. So, so in each case, there had to be, um, in the pre-automotive age, there needed to be um, some kind of public conveyance. Yes, sir? Yeah, Olmsted married, interestingly enough, he married his brother's widow, and his brother... Um, the brother I described earlier, who he became pathologically jealous of, who took the walking tour across England, well, his brother died of tuberculosis, and he wrote a deathbed letter in which literally the PS of the deathbed letter is, don't let Mary suffer while I'm alive. Olmsted took that very literally, apparently, <laughs> and he married her a few years later. Um, sadly, they had kind of a marriage of duty and obligation. He was basically, he was raising his brother's three children, 
Um, and then he and Mary had four children, two of whom died in infancy, um, one of whom grew up and ultimately was involved in the Olmsted firm that I described earlier. And then there was Frederick Law Olmsted Jr. also. That was, that was um, um, his other son with Mary. Yes, sir. Those are always collaborators. I kind of described how Olmsted outstepped his bounds when he starts making suggestions on the architecture of the Capitol. He typically had a division of labor. Vox was a perfect example in Central Park. Vox was a trained architect, um, um, somebody who um, knew how to design a beautiful bridge, a beautiful refectory, whatever it might be. After he and Vox's partnership broke up, Olmsted always had a similar relationship with a architect where he would come up with the landscape elements. He would think about what a meadow should look like, what planting should look like, various, you know, what the what the sort of the flora should feel like. Meanwhile, the architect would would design the bridges and one of his most fruitful collaborations was with the great architect H. H. Richardson. Much of the work done in the Emerald Necklace in Boston, the bridges and other structures are often designed by H.H. Richardson. So he always had that division of labor where he was the landscape architect and there was someone else who was a, an architect who he had worked with. Yes, sir. There absolutely was, and I'll tell you two things that, were just, that just vividly informed his vision. One was he visited Birkenhead Park, and Birkenhead Park outside Liverpool is, it's, it's really a lot of people would tell you that you know, nothing new under the sun, Central Park draws very heavily on Joseph Paxton's naturalistic, and also it was a public park. It was actually paid for with taxpayer money, if I remember correctly. And um, although England at that point was not as democratic as the United States in its government at least, this was a democratic park. It was a democratic park, a, a place for the masses to mingle. It was also a naturalistic park. So without question, Olmsted was very influenced by Birkenhead Park. The other thing that was a powerful influence on him is he was able to, to um, kind of pull some strings. He was traveling with some friends, including um, Charles Brace, the guy I showed at the beginning who, who um, helped found the Children's Aid Society. He was able to pull some strings, and he got some private tours of castles. And there's a wonderful description in the very book I described, Walks and Talks of an American Farmer in England, of a private tour he took of Chirk Castle in Wales, which was a private ground. And at first, Olmsted had a kind of reverie. It's wonderful. He records it in the book. He thought, wow, wouldn't it be cool to, um, to own a castle like this and to have my own landscape, you know? And, he, and then in the very next moment, I'm sure a lot of people who visited England from America have had this very same perception. He thought, wait a minute, I'm an American. I'm an egalitarian. What a, what a horrible thing that this lovely landscape outside of Shirt Castle is cloistered and that the masses are kept out by gates and fences. So he sort of had this pendulum swing where he went from this reverie about you know, what, how fun it would be to be rich and, and own his own castle to wouldn't it make more sense as an egalitarian American to try to introduce such a landscape to the masses. So he was very heavily, short answer, he was very heavily influenced by that trip to England.
Yes, ma'am. I don't know. Olmsted did so many projects himself. I actually, I have a good idea of most of what Olmsted Sr. did, but Olmsted Jr., because it, he kind of professionalized the practice of landscape architecture, by his time you could travel by plane or you could pick up the phone. There are so many projects that he had a hand in, in one fashion or another, that I guess um, the answer is I don't know, but it's certainly possible. He did so many things, so many places. So it's certainly possible he had a hand in that. Maybe somebody here knows the answer. Yes, sir. And, and where's, where is this? This is in Baltimore? Great. Well, well, thanks for the clarification. And every time I've, I, I visited Mount Vernon Place for the first time today, which was wonderful, and now I have another place to add to my list. So thank you. Yes, ma'am. There certainly was. Yeah, he, he grew up, um, he was just a voracious reader. And he would go, his, his father funded what was called the Young Men's Institute. It was, it was in effect, the public library of, of Hartford. And it was, and um, he, um, he was just a voracious reader. And he was certainly influenced. He was influenced by English figures such as Ruskin. He was also influenced by transcendental thinking. He read very heavily as a young man. And, and, and it certainly informed his work. Yes, sir. Well, it's in, that's a that's a very good question. He, for his own purposes, in his own time, um, he certainly, um, you know, he was he was not a he was not shy about diving into things. It was it was a very it was a frontier era in which a frontier mentality prevailed in the United States. So sort of all hands on deck. And so Olmsted, he was able, as I described in, in the speech, to sort of move from from various profession to various profession fairly easily. And you know there, there weren't things weren't as codified. But Olmsted perceived that the world was changing and he was desperate to make sure that his son, Frederick Law Olmsted Jr., got the kind of formal training he felt like he lacked. And he wrote him just a, a slew, a huge number, often very detailed, often very hectoring letters, which actually 
pushed him away for in fact for a while frederick Olmsted jr actually considered going into a different field because his father you know it's a classic story his father was bearing down so hard on him and saying train yourself learn this you know and part of it too is Olmsted had a kind of folk wisdom knowledge of plants for instance he didn't know the scientific names of plants he didn't know a lot of he just sort of had great instincts he had a lot of nerve but he felt that you know going forward he was very intent that his that his son Frederick Law Olmsted get the training he hadn't gotten and really ground himself in a scientific knowledge of botany and dendrology and so forth yes sir Well, I guess um, in the case of Olmsted, I would say his his the city he loved was London. He just he loved London. He loved it for its parks. He he just loved visiting there. And I guess there's something. I guess you could say that you know that England. I mean, people always say that English gardens are just they create an incredible standard with their lushness. And so, I think he loved the London gardens because they had the London parks, because they often had the aesthetic that he brought to, you know, the United States with something like Central Park of, of you know, lush and wild and nature kind of unt untamed and untraveled. So London was definitely Olmsted's kind of his, sit outside of America now, in, in America, you know, he, he was partial to, um, to, to New York and Boston, particularly were the cities he lived in for, for his entire adult life. With respect to a, a sort of the future of cities, I mean, I guess with Olmsted, the main thing I'd say is he had a sense, he was very, very, like, for instance, when he visited Yosemite, he instantly, I mean, he, when he visited Yosemite, there was hardly anybody there, but he instantly thought, you know, it won't be long before there are people here. In fact, he wrote a report in which he described that millions of people one day visit the spot. That came true, I think, I think 1957 or something was the year I once read when finally the millionth in a year visitor came to Yosemite. But he had this vision of, you know, things growing up. And when he, when he designed Central Park, Central Park was uptown in New York City. New York City extended at that point to roughly where the Empire State Building is today, about 34th Street. Central Park was in the rural, what was then the rural, less developed part of Manhattan. But when Olmsted designed it, again, he had this sense of manifest destiny. He knew the city would grow up around it. He knew this would be a haven for green space. So Olmsted's vision for cities was that now was the crucial time. It's really wonderful that Olmsted was around practicing and working when he did because basically all this inner city green space that he fought to have set aside in cities all over the country had that not been done you would have had the cities in some cases just fill in and it would be impossible to undo what had been done in concrete yes ma'am in the back You bet he did. That was one of his, he actually, I described the Biltmore Estate as being his swan song. He kind of had a dual swan song. He was working on two projects at once. He was sneaking away from one to work on the other. He perceived both of them were incredibly important, um, and he, he tried to give 100% to both of them. That's part of the reason why I described him as being, he was very worn out by the time he, and the World's Fair, of course, very unusual mandate. It, it needed to be a very attractive temporary landscape 
that would host a fair that would hopefully establish Chicago as a world city and America, since they were inviting you know countries from all over the world to exhibit there, and America as a as a formidable um, power in the world. So as almost said, you know, as as a Democrat, small D, as a patriot, um, he certainly perceived that the Chicago World's Fairgrounds it was it was an incredibly important project that he gave a lot to. Yes, sir. The kind of home life that he provided was they, they lived, um, by the time his kids were um, a little bit older, he'd moved, he, he always wanted to move back to New England. He ended up moving to Brookline, Massachusetts. Um, Olmsted was, different era, Olmsted was country and even world renowned, but he was not rich. He was middle class by, by you know, by that's how he'd be describing current standards. So he bought a house um, that had about two acres of land in a nice neighborhood, Brookline, um, he then proceeded to turn his two acres of land into just an amazing personal park. If you, and, and Fairstead, which is the name of his house, um, if you get a chance to visit Brookline, it's, it's, it's a national historic site run by the National Park Service. You can take a tour inside and also take a tour of the grounds that surround it. Beautiful. I mean, he just had, you know, he brought his, his passion to bear. And so it's an interesting house because outside of the house, you know, nature prevails. Even the house, he, he had all these, um, um, he, he created so it would train vines to crawl over the house. So the house was just buried in vines. You could barely see anything. Inside the house, it was, a, it was actually a, a home office, which is kind of unusual in 19th century, um, as a 19th century practice. He worked out of his home, and as, as his practice started to become more and more robust, he, he brought a certain number of people in who would work in his home. And then I'll, I'll give you just one story, which will kind of illustrate what domestic life was like with Olmsted. Olmsted had lost, um, you know, he had a lot of loss in his life. He'd lost his brother. He'd also lost a couple of the children he had with Mary. Um, he was very anxious that when he had a young son, if I remember correctly, the date of his birth was in 1870. For the first two years of that boy's name, he simply, he and Mary simply called the boy, boy. They didn't even give him a name. They were, they were so afraid that they would sort of invite the wrath of the gods if they gave him a name. At the age of two, they named him Henry Perkins Olmsted. At the age of seven, when there, it was clear that there might be some chance that he might live to maturity and be able to follow in his father's footsteps, they rechristened Henry Frederick Olmsted Jr. So that gives you a flavor for his hopes and also the intense pressure that was bearing down on, on this young man. <laughs> so, <laughs> sure. Should, should I take one more question? Or, yes. um, I mean, given the time signal, I'll take one more question. I think so. Um, I, I think that, I think that there's actually, uh, I, I mean, there's sort of an ethos that exists now that parks parks are for the people. Um, you know that's that's kind of the idea. And 
you know, this, the whole notion of the public park has become a, a big part of American society. I know in New York City where I live, there's a place called Gramercy Park, which is an old-style park. It predates Olmsted. And if you are wealthy enough to own a home surrounding Gramercy Park, you get a key, and you can use that key to go into that park. And that's who, that's who spends time in Gramercy Park. I've never been in Gramercy Park, but I assume that it's not a very democratic space. You probably don't meet many people different from oneself. And so the notion of the public park, I think it's very alive and well. I was in the High Line this past weekend, the, the park in New York City, um, which is, you know, um, and there was just people of, it's, it's a public park, you know, just people of every kind and every background mixing and mingling. And, and so although it's very, very different from an Olmsted design, it certainly has that public mandate. And I, I think that, um, as far as I can tell, as far, as far as I know, that's a part of that, that's sort of a hallowed principle of American parks now is that they should be places for the masses. Well, thank you very much.